So, Lord, uh, we thank you that we're here. And uh, so instruct us and teach us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we read in chapter 3, verse 1, that to the angel the church of Sardis writes, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that you are ready to die. For I have found, uh, not found, your works perfect before God. In verse 3, remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And in verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And as we look at this fifth church that Jesus writes a letter to, remember in chapter 1 that he's standing in the midst of seven lampstands. Those are seven little churches, historical churches that existed in the first century. John here on the island of Patmos is towards the end of the first century. And as he sees the, the glorified Jesus in chapter 1, Jesus begins to then write and dictate that is chapters 2 and 3 should be all red lettered because this is Jesus uh, that is saying these things to the churches. John is writing these things down. And so Jesus is addressing the messenger of the churches that are listed in chapters 2 and 3. Probably the pastor, uh, the Greek word angelos, it just means messenger. And Jesus is talking to these churches the things that, that he is commending them on um, and then the things they need to repent of. And we saw that the first church was Ephesus. That was the working church, but they were ones that had left their first love. The second church was Smyrna. They were the persecuted church. Jesus didn't have anything negative to say to the persecuted church of Smyrna. And then we saw Pergamos. They were the compromising church. Uh, and then we saw Perg uh, Thyatira, that is, last time. They were the corrupt church. And now as we move into chapter 3, we're going to see the three final churches, the church of Sardis that we're going to study here tonight. And we see that they are known as the dead church. And then next week, we're going to look at the church of Philadelphia. There is, uh, there in the church of Philadelphia, um, they are known as the faithful church. And Jesus has uh, everything positive to say about them. He has nothing negative to say to them. And then we will see the church at Laodicea, the final and seventh uh, letter that is written to the seventh church. And they are the lukewarm church. So really, as we look at tonight, I think it's important for us to really look at this carefully, what is being told to us as we see that again in verse 1, and to the messenger or the angel of the church of Sardis writes, and Sardis was a city that had existed uh, long before this time in the, in the first uh, century. Matter of fact, Sardis was at its height and uh, was in its glory 1,200 years before this letter is being written to them. They used to be the capital of the kingdom of Lydia, and it was a city that right now that has been on the decline. It has already seen its best days, and it was a city that at 
one time was known for its luxury, its wealth. It was a city known for also its apathy. And as we consider where uh, Sardis was, there were five major roads at this time, five uh, junctions of roads that kind of met there uh, right below where the city was. And roads in those days, of course, were trade routes. And the city ended up being above where the roads were. It was built upon a citadel on top of a bluff that was about 1,500 feet above those roads where they were. And there was a crest of mountains that were there. And they ended up building Sardis on top of, of that uh, mountain, you know, range. And there was the city that was built there. And then on three sides of it, it dropped down 1,500 feet. And then on the one side, there was a narrow passage that would lead you up to the city. And it was very easily defendable. You could defend any attack that came into the city. It was very difficult to get up there. It's kind of like Masada. When we go to Israel, one of the places, if you're going with us in October, is down by the Dead Sea. We will go to a place called Masada, and perhaps you've seen it, looking it up. There's a, a movie that's called Masada, and it was built by Herod the Great. It was one of his fortresses, and he built it up on this bluff out there in the Judean wilderness, and it, it is, you know, uh, very difficult to get there. Um, you can walk up Masada. It's about almost 1,500 feet, the same as what's here in Sardis and it takes a while, and it's hot in the desert. I did it when I was young. Uh, the first time I went to Israel, I've been there about eight times. And uh, so it's very difficult to get to it. And so it reminds you of Masada. It reminds you of Petra. If you go to Jordan, that rock city where there's only a narrow passage to get into the rock city of Petra. And um, some of the places that lead you to the rock city of Petra are, um, you know, it's not even as wide as the sanctuary. It's only about 10 feet wide. It goes straight up almost 1,000 feet. And it's actually very incredible. And then you come to this rock city, and it's the size of Manhattan, very large. So that's where uh, in the tribulation period, when we get to chapters 12, uh, we're going to see uh, 11, 12, and 13, the midpoint of the tribulation period, we will see that the remnant of the Jews are going to hide in the rock city. City of Petra. So Sardis is in this place on this, this mountaintop, and it's uh, 1,500 feet above these roads. And as we know that uh, there were those who would dwell in the city, and uh, they would climb up to the city. Uh, they knew that their city was easily, as I said, defendable, and they thought that they were safe, that no one can effectively attack us or defeat us. In reality, what ended up happening is they had a false sense of security. And you see, that can happen to us as Christians. It can happen to us as a church, Calvary Chapel. We can have a false sense of security. And it is oftentimes where we feel like where we are strong, where we ended up failing in our lives. We end up depending on our own strength. We end up depending on our own resources, our health, our togetherness, our intellect, uh, what we have. And we're not 
we're not really trusting in the Lord. We're not really depending upon him. And oftentimes where we are strong, we end up failing in those areas because we haven't given it to the Lord. We're not praying about it. We're just thinking that, Lord, I got this. You know, here are the areas that I need help. But this area, I'm okay. So uh, we're not really paying attention. We're not, uh, you know, looking to the Lord. It's kind of like uh, in the Old Testament, Moses, he was the most humble man on the face of the earth, uh, as the Old Testament tells us. But where did he fail? He got angry at the people and he struck the rock. He said, must we fetch water for you? It's Peter in the New Testament. Peter was a brave individual. Uh, Peter was the only one that was willing to step out of the boat onto the water and walk on water. That took a lot of courage because I don't think I would have been able to do that in the storm and walk on water. It was Peter that pulled out a sword there in the garden. He was ready to take on a detachment of troops when they came to arrest Jesus. But where did Peter fail? He failed in the courtroom of Caiaphas, in the courtyard that is outside there, he was scared of a little girl. And you see, the thing is that as you look at Peter's life, and in that night, he was following the Lord from a distance. It says that he followed them from afar as they bounded Jesus up, and they took him to the, the house of Caiaphas where he would go on trial. And Peter was following from a distance. And whenever that we are relying on our own strength in something, that we end up following the Lord from a distance. It was David, as you read about him in 2 Samuel, the uh, end of the book, you see that David, he decided to count the people. And it was Joab and some of the others are saying, why do you want to do that, David? Don't do it. But he did it anyway. And of course, as you read that chapter at the end of 2 Samuel, you see that the Lord came and brought a plague. And David, uh, he, he was brokenhearted. He repented of it. But there was consequences because of it. And you read that chapter and you think, man, that the Lord was awfully hard on David. But here's the thing. And David counting the people what he was doing was, is that he was saying, I'm going to look how many people I have so I know how strong my kingdom is, how many soldiers and fighting soldiers that I have. And he was prideful and he was looking at the strength of numbers rather than remembering that his strength was in the Lord. As he would write in the Psalms that some trust in horses and some in chariots, but we will remember the name of the Lord. And so he was trusting in how many fighting men that he had rather than the Lord himself was to be their strength. You see, easily in our own lives, as I said, that we begin to rely on ourselves and our own strength and resources, even as a church, you know, as a church, Calvary Chapel, I pray that we never rely on just, you know, the, how much money's coming in or buildings or how many people we have or how much ministry takes place. Listen, our strength is what? In the Lord. It will always be in the Lord to look to him and trust to him. So they were looking at their own, you know, situation. And, and they were ones that um, had a false sense of security. And in their history, uh, there was a king of the city, Corias. Uh, and Corias, maybe you've heard of, uh, well, the Midas touch. We've all heard of that um, 
the ones that do the mufflers or whatever. But that's an old Greek saying that uh, whatever it is that you touch, you, you're successful and, and you make money. And Coreas, uh, he was one uh, that came up with a gold coinage and he would produce these gold coins that was so accurate, the weight of it, that it would be accepted anywhere in the kingdom and he was the first to be able to do that. So during the days of Cyrus, of the Medes and the Persians, remember, they have a long history, this city does, 1,200 years before this letter was even written, and it would be 600 years before this letter is written, when Cyrus, the king of the Medes and the Persians, keep in mind, as we saw in the book of Isaiah, that Cyrus was mentioned as God's instrument. And after the Babylonian captivity, as it, it came to an end, that it was Cyrus, the king of the Medes and the Persians, that defeated the Babylonians, he made the decree that the Jews could go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. So Cyrus uh, would uh, be uh, the, the king of and the leader of the, the empire that replaced Babylon. Well, Coreas, he decides that he's going to battle against Cyrus and, and his powerful Persian kings, which was awfully foolish to do that. And his troops were defeated. They retreated back to the citadel of Sardis. And Cyrus comes to that place and he sees the city up on this bluff, 1,500 feet. And we can't go up through that narrow passage because it's not going to work. So what he did was, is that he would challenge his men. He had the Greek historian Herodotus tells us that he would uh, study the city. And there seemed to be no way that they could scale the steep cliffs, walls that surrounded the city. So what he did, Cyrus offered his generals a reward to any soldier in his army who could figure out a way to get up to the city and break into the city to defeat it. So there's one soldier, it's written by Herodotus, that he was there and he studied and he watched and he just waited and he watched hour after hour, day after day. And finally, he saw a soldier up on top there that dropped something. It was a helmet or something down off the cliff. And he just continued to watch. And he saw that the soldier climbed down this, this passageway, came around that you couldn't really see from the bottom, a hidden trail to recover his helmet. So he ended up marking the location of the trail. He led some troops up there that night, and they were able to go into the city, and they found that the city walls, they were unguarded. There was no watchman. There was no one guarding the city. And the soldiers of Sardis were, were confident in their natural defenses of the city. They felt there was no need to have a watch up there. So they were all sleeping. They, they weren't watchful. So the city ended up being conquered. And what is interesting is that the same thing would happen after Cyrus defeated them about 200 years later when Antiochus the Great in 218 BC, he conquered the city as well because they did not set a watch. They were not watching. They were overconfident. And so both times the city was taken because there was no watchman on the wall. They were uh, overconfident. They were asleep. And it was then that the saying was born like a thief in the night. And that perhaps rings a bell with you, you Bible students. 
And the Lord is depicting this church now as being asleep. It was a city that was later destroyed in 17 AD by an earthquake. And Tiberius, the emperor at that time, what he decides to do is that he's going to rebuild the city of Sardis, but it's going to be down below at the foot of the mountain where those roads were. And it was said historically from that time that you could hear the people daily uh, in the marketplace that would speak of you know, their past glory. Oh, do you remember? They would look up at that citadel, how glorious it was being up there and, and how we were strong up there and bragging about their past glory and all of this, uh, the luxury that they had up there. And that's what they would talk about, you know, during the days of Jesus. As I mentioned, Sardis was a city that uh, there was, they were immoral. They had the goddess Artemis that was there, uh, Kippel worship, uh, where they worship in immoral ways. And so with all of this background, we look at this letter. Keep in mind that the people of Sardis knew all of this well as the Lord writes to them. So once again, we look at this to the angel of the church of Sardis writes, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now we saw these two things in chapter 1, in verse 4, from the seven spirits who are before the throne. Now, don't think that there are seven Holy Spirits. There's only one Holy Spirit. But again, it's many Bible teachers say that it's a reference to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, the seven attributes of the Holy Spirit. And the seven stars are, of course, as we've gone over, the seven messengers. We're told that in the last verse of chapter 1 that we're in the right hand of Jesus, the seven pastors. And that certainly is comforting to me to know that I'm in his hand uh, as the pastor of this church. But as believers, we're in his hands, aren't we? And a very comforting chapter in John's narrative is in chapter 10 where Jesus says that my sheep hear my voice and they know me. And he goes on to say that we are in the Father's hand, we're in Jesus' hand, and he goes on to say that no one will snatch you out of my hand, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. We're in his hands. Those hands that died for you and for me, that allowed, you know, his hands to be pierced to that cross. We are in his hands. He says, no one's going to snatch you out of my hands. No one's going to snatch you out of my father's hand. And recall that in Isaiah chapter 49, that the Lord says, see, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hand. That speaks of permanence when you inscribe something on your hand. So that's good news, all because of Jesus' love for us, that he's the good shepherd. And here are the pastors in the hands of Jesus as he's writing to these churches here. But as we continue with Jesus saying that I know your works, remember that's, that's one of the patterns that we see in all of the seven letters here. I know your works. And we need to be reminded of that always, that Jesus knows our works. He knows your works individually. He he knows our work as a church and he says to them I know your works that you have a name that you are alive but you are dead you have a reputation of being alive but you are dead this church was known as the dead church it reminds me of the religious leaders in Jesus day 
They had a reputation. They had a reputation of being so righteous. They had a reputation of being so religious. But Jesus would say to them that you're like whitewashed tombs to where you're all polished outwardly, but you're full of dead men's bones. There is a deadness because Jesus sees the heart of a Christian and he sees the heart of a church. And Jesus will not have anything good or commendable to say about this church. He will say that there's a few that you haven't defiled your garments, but he doesn't really commend them on anything. And just as the people would gather in Sardis at this time, they would talk about their past glory. That, that oh, do you remember those days? And I remember, you know, that it used to be this. Or my father and grandfather said it was this way. And that can be true with a Christian, and that can be true with the church as well. Looking back at the glory days, what it used to be like and all of this. And listen, I know that we have different seasons of life that come to us. Responsibilities that change and situations, we get older, I, I understand that. But listen, I pray that we would never just be living on reputation or past glory. And I certainly pray that that would not be the case for this church, Calvary Chapel. We wouldn't as a church just, you know, remember when God was moving Remember when, when this was happening? You remember when people were giving their lives to Jesus and, and uh, getting saved and growing and, and there's young people coming and they were excited about the Lord? And, and please don't misunderstand me. We are thankful for the past. We do look back and remember how God has worked. But we also want to remember that God still wants to work in our church. He wants to work in your life individually. One of the things I really appreciate about my pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith, you know, when he would speak to us pastors, when we would go to pastors' conferences, he would always remind us of that, that God still wants to work. Pastor Chuck didn't just talk about you know, the tent days or when the Jesus movement was at its peak. I mean, that was a great movement of God. And I think I've already mentioned a good book that we have in the bookstore that Greg Laurie has written, the, his latest book, The Jesus Revelation, uh, Revolution. It talks about the Jesus movement in the 60s where the hippies were getting saved and, and there was this revival that took place and, and it was all part of the Calvary Chapel movement and that's where contemporary worship came out of and many of the hippies that were lost and on drugs and coming out and living on the beaches and stuff. They were getting saved, giving their lives to Jesus Christ. And it was such a powerful move of God. We got people here that were a part of the Jesus movement, that, that they can tell you about it. And it was such a wonderful time and, and how God worked. And in Greg Laurie's book, one of the purposes he writes the book is because he wants to remind us that God still wants to move in that way today. That I pray for another Jesus movement, especially in the day in which we are living in. Another Jesus revolution. That God wants to work in our church. And Pastor Chuck was always good at the conferences to remind us that, you know, he was excited about what God was doing. And he always expected to God to keep working. He would say, oh, I can't wait to see what the Lord is going to do. That's the way that he lived. Uh, and, and that's the way I want to live. 
And I hope that's true for us here at Calvary Chapel. I really believe with all of my heart as I look back, I'm thankful for what he has done here at Calvary Chapel. But I also believe that he's just getting started. And I believe really with all my heart, the best is yet to come. That he wants to move. He wants to work. He wants to keep using us. He wants to, to, to keep you know, guiding us and directing us. Yes, we're thankful for what he has done. And there can be churches that at one time there was a great work of, of God. They had a reputation of being alive, but now there's a deadness that has taken place. Over time, complacency comes in. And that's what happened here in Sardis. They were complacent. They were overtaken. They weren't watching. Over time, just this beautiful work of the Lord, and, and there are today, there are churches and ministries that they started out, which is a powerful move of God, and now there's a deadness, unfortunately. There are those who have gone in the direction of they don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They don't stand for the gospel. You know, they're more interested in the environment and social issues. They don't believe in biblical morality. That salvation alone is in Christ Jesus. It's no secret. We know that to be true. You can look it up and see those things happening more and more today. And at one time in their history that there was a powerful move of God and they had a reputation of being alive, but now there is a deadness. Maybe they had a form of, uh, even today, they have a form of religiousness. They got beautiful buildings and they wear robes and they quote the Bible and they talk about the sayings of Jesus. But there is a deadness that is there according to the Lord. But what is interesting as we consider it, that's one thing that can bring deadness. But as you read through this letter that, that we did here, only you know, six verses here, Jesus did not say that there was false teaching in the church. He did not address them in false doctrine. Remember that in Pergamos, he said, you have the doctrine of Balaam. He, he rebukes them on that. To Thyatira, he says, you've allowed this woman Jezebel to teach. She calls herself a prophetess, but she's leading you astray in idolatry and immorality. Jesus doesn't say that here to Sardis, that you have false doctrine. But he says, you're still dead, which tells me something that's very sobering. You see, you can be a church. They, you stand firm in the word of God, but there's still a deadness that is there. You can say that we're right and, and we're serious Christians and there can be this pride. And over time, we have our group and we're the frozen chosen and, you know, we're right in our theology, but they're dead right. No one has gotten saved in their church for years. They got it all figured out. They like to point the finger at everybody else and say, you need to be like us. This is the way we, we do things. And, and we're not going to change. And this is the way it is. And sometimes they'll point their finger at the young people. Those young people, you know. And, and, and they're kind of stuck in a rut. And, and this is what we do. And we're not going to change this. And over time, it can lead to deadness. Pastor Chuck, he used to warn us of that. 
with Calvary Chapel. He said, listen, that what has begun in the spirit are you going to try to perfect in the flesh? There are going to be things here that will always be a priority. Teaching of the word of God. There's going to be an emphasis of prayer. There's going to be an emphasis of fellowship, loving one another, and breaking of bread. That was the four things that the early church was about and continued steadfastly in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And such were, you know, you know, being saved daily, coming into the church as they did those things. And we want to model, model ourselves after, you know, what is told to us in the book of Acts, what the church should be about and in the epistles. But we want to be open to what God wants to do. And we don't want to just get to be where it's routine and mundane. And this is how we do it. And we're not going to change anything. And, and, and that's just the way it is. And Rather than, Lord, what do you want from us today? Lord, how do you want to move today in this church? How do you want to move in my life? And there are churches that they can have nice buildings. You know, they have big buildings. But there's a deadness that is there. And it can happen to us over time if we're not careful, we're not watchful, and we're not prayerful. I have said this before, and I'm going to say it again, but I think that the biggest threat to Calvary Chapel Greeley at this point isn't that we need to get a bigger building. That would be nice. It isn't if we lose our parking over here. That would be nice to keep. I hope we do get to keep it. But that's not our biggest threat. You know, our biggest threat to Calvary Chapel Greeley is we become complacent. Because things are good. Things are all right. We come in and they teach the word of God and the kids are all ready to be ministered to. I'm thankful for that. And we will always have that in place. But over time, what can happen is it leads to complacency. And we never want to get to that place where we're complacent and this is the way that we do it and we'll always do it this way and you know and we get into a rut and we start going through the motions I can do that with my ministry I can come up and I can give a teaching and I've been teaching a long time just get through it and then I get to go home and that's what I'm looking forward to rather than being excited about every time that I get behind this pulpit I get to teach the word of God and I see it as a privilege and an honor and every time that we gather here on Sundays and Wednesdays, I'm thinking, Lord, what is it that you're going to do? Whose heart are you going to touch? Oh, Lord, I want to be open to, to how you want to touch the hearts of people. You know, I remember it wasn't that long ago that I was visiting a church. I was, you know, asked to visit a church and um, beautiful building. And I just appreciated the pastor so much and his length of years in ministry and and um, just, just love to have fellowship with him. But what was interesting is, you know, he talked to me about how the church was in a rut and how, you know, they've done it this way and they're not going to change it and how he was kind of up against that. And, and here we are talking after the service, the service one hour long, and they're turning off the lights. Turning off the lights and it's time to go. Got to get out the door. You know, don't want anybody hanging around fellowshipping, things like that. So those things can happen over time. 
And here the church of Sardis may have their theology in line, but there is this death that's taken place because they were looking to their reputation. I hope that we don't just look to our reputation in the past and what you've done, Lord, but I know that you want to work now and he wants to work in our church and however he wants to work, we need to be open to it. And we need to be reaching out in love to others and be committed to the scriptures. Yes, we will do those things. But Lord, we don't want a deadness to come into this place and into our lives, into our ministries. So they were looking to their reputation. Then secondly, verse 2, be watchful. And then verse 3, we read, Therefore, if you do not watch, it will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I have come upon you. Remember that the things that Jesus is saying to them would have, you know, some unique meaning to them. You know, be watchful. They, they would think about how Sardis was overtaken because they didn't set a watch. And here, once again, for you, the church, you need to be watchful. And if not, I will come upon you as a thief, he says to them. We will see repeatedly as we read the scriptures, and you know this, we're told to, we are to watch. When we go back into the book of Ezekiel, when we get finished with Revelation, we'll go through Jeremiah, we'll go through Ezekiel. Ezekiel talks about setting a watchman on the wall. You and I are called to be watchmen. The watchman was on the walls to be watching, and then if danger was coming, he would blow the trumpet, he would warn the people, hey, there's danger coming, or it's all clear, or whatever the case may be. You and I are called to be watchmen. And as we grow in the scriptures, we're learning the scriptures, being discerning in the days in which we were living in, you get to go out and be a watchman. You get to warn people. You know, you get to go out and, and give people the truth. Hey, we're in the last days. Pay attention to what's going on. And, and to be a watchman, to give the gospel message. And so Ezekiel talks about the watchman. Uh, Isaiah would indict the people because they'd become spiritually sluggish and sleepy. When you go to the New Testament, Jesus tells us what? He tells us to watch. For you do not know what hour your master comes. In Matthew chapter 24, I'm sure that many of you, you've read these verses. In verse 42, watch therefore, Jesus says, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Jesus meant what he said, and he said what he meant. He says, I'm going to come back in an hour that you do not expect. So let me ask you something. Do you expect the Lord to come back tonight, tomorrow? Be careful because he comes in an hour that you do not expect. He talks about the importance of watching in Luke chapter 21. Again, the Olivet Discourse. As Luke records that he says, Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. He'd been talking about the tribulation period and the signs of the end and all of this. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the cares of life, and that day shall come upon you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. We talked about that quite extensively as we went through that. He says, watch, therefore, and pray always. 
watch and pray. Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica that you know, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, I have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as what? A thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, but that this day should overtake you as a thief. Your sons of light, sons of the day, were not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us, what? Watch and be sober. And those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as the helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us the wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us throughout his word that we're to be watchful, to be sober, to be vigilant, to not to be overtaken. I think this is my opinion that there's too many Christians that are asleep spiritually. And they're not watching. They're not discerning. They're not discerning of the days that we're in. They're not discerning of how culture is affecting us, the church, and our society is coming against us. And it just causes us to get sleepy and lethargic. I've had some that you know, have said to me in churches that there's a deadness at one time. They went to that church 30, 40 years ago, and they said, we, we pray for the gospel. We, we want the gospel to come. Our church has become liberal and has gotten away from the scriptures. And I pray that never happens. We can come into this place and we think, well, I didn't like that song or the coffee wasn't good enough or, you know, I I don't like this and that. And it's like God is saying to us, wake up. He says it to me, be watchful, discerning of the times that we're in. Be prayerful because the enemy is looking for that trail and that passage to come to you. Come to me to come to this church if we become lethargic, we become sleepy. It was in the garden. They remember that Jesus was praying in the garden. He told his disciples, be watchful and pray, lest you be led into temptation. Be watchful and pray. Be watchful and pray. And what happened? They were sleeping three times. Three times told to be watchful and be praying, lest you're led into temptation. And they were sleeping three times. And there Jesus is watching them sleep. And there coming across the Kidron Valley was a detachment of troops. And while they were sleeping, the enemy was plotting. The enemy was planning and the enemy was coming. And they came into the garden and woke up those disciples and they came to arrest Jesus. Listen, if you're asleep, if I'm asleep, if this church is asleep, it's going to be the enemy that's going to look for a way to get a foothold and come into this place. And it happens. It happens when there's complacency and we're not watching and we're sleepy spiritually. (laughs) If you're sleeping, the enemy's going to be plotting and he's going to be coming. And we need to be watchful. We need to be looking and be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
So there was a deadness that was taking place because they relied on their reputation. Second of all, they weren't watchful. And then thirdly, they needed to strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die, verse 2, and hold fast and repent, verse 3, that we read. The spiritual condition of the church of Sardis was bad, but it was not hopeless. There are some things that remain that needed to be strengthened. Jesus was not going to give up on this church, but telling them to be strengthened in the things that remain, hold fast and repent. He says to, that, to a church that is dying, to a Christian that is dying, remember, hold fast to that, which remain. It was in Hebrews chapter 10 that you read that we are told, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful, are you and I, are we as a church holding fast the confession of our faith? of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, of the inerrancy and inspiration and infallibility of the Scriptures, of the Lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ, walking and living in the Spirit like Romans chapter 8 that we looked at so carefully. Or are we carnally minded? Oh, I'm a Christian. You know, I, I've been coming for years. I, I've gone to the Bible studies. I, I've gone to Wednesday nights. I, I, I've done these things. I grew up in the church. I've got a reputation. That's my glory. And you're beginning to fade away. Become sleepy. Lethargic a bit. It's not as important to be in fellowship. All of a sudden, it's not as a priority. You're not excited about reading the Word of God. You're not excited about being with the brethren. Listen, I know we're not always going to be here. But the Lord would say to us, hold fast the things that remain. Hold fast your confession. Hold fast to those things that are good. And we don't want the Lord to ever come upon us as a thief because we're living in compromise or lethargic or sleepy. If Christ were to come tonight, tomorrow, you know, would he come upon us as a thief? In other words, would it be surprising? Would it shock us? Jesus wanted to breathe life into this church. And he wants to bring and breathe life into us. He wants to bring life to us and those things that oh, we can get so lazy and it happens to all of us or complacent or I don't care, it's not important anymore and I don't want my spiritual life to have the stench of death because I'm relying on my own abilities I'm overconfident relying on my past glory sleeping spiritually and I'm not holding fast my confession. And then in verse 4, you have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. God has his remnant of people even in the church that's dying. And I've talked to them. Again, as I've said, I've talked to people and said, you know, this church used to, to you know, really believe in the Bible. This church, you know, uh, used to have people that got saved. And they're praying for that. They're, they're praying for that to come back. They're, they're praying that people will come to really know the scriptures and know the gospel once again. And Jesus here, he's saying, I got a few names even in Sardis. 
They have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white. They're worthy. In Revelation chapter 19, in the second coming, we're told that the armies of heaven are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And what a glorious day that's going to be. And he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, speaking of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Secondly, there's a promise to those who overcome. Remember the definition of an overcomer is one um, that is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. First John 5, 5, who's an overcomer? One that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's a definition of an overcomer. And he says here that I will not blot out his name from the book of life. That's a great promise, isn't it? You know, the Bible records certain books. There's a book of Jasser that is mentioned in the Old Testament. We don't have that book. In Psalm 56, there is a book that records all of our tears. Did you know that? There is not a tear that you have shed that God has not taken notice of it. It is recorded in a book. Every tear, when you thought that you were alone, and when nobody cared, and God doesn't see I want you to know this, that our father noticed and recorded every one of those tears. And somehow David knew that as he writes, you number my wonderings and put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? And when you came to Christ, you're in the book of life. And he says, I'm not going to blot you out. And then the third promise, verse 5, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And again, it's amazing. It goes along with one of my favorite verses that we have in the little book of Jude. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before his throne with exceeding joy. I love that. Jesus, he says to the one, as he talks about the parable, the talents and minus, that the one who's been the faithful servant, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. And one day, folks, one day, the reality is this, that we're going to stand before the Lord. And what my prayer for me and for my family and for you, how I desire, how I desire to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things because I know that I've fallen short a whole lot of times and many times in my own life. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And then you and I will be presented as faultless before the Father. And the Father and the Son are going to rejoice over us. He's going to know our names. He's not going to go, um, wait a minute here before I introduce you to the Father. What's your name again? You know, who are you? You know, what is it that you did? Um, where did you pastor? Well, how big was your church? You know, none of that. We're going to be presented before him as we stand at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ to be rewarded for what we have done for Christ and what we do for Christ. That's the only thing that's going to last. As you're raising your children in the ways of the Lord, as you're praying for them, as you're taking care of elderly parents or a spouse, 
as you're one that you're just helping in practical ways, as you're changing diapers in the nursery and ministering to the little ones in the class, as you're making a meal for somebody, as you're encouraging people, as you're just reaching out and touching lives and giving truth. That's what we're to be about. And I hope and pray as I read about this church that I don't want a deadness to come into my life and into my heart and into this church. I don't want to play games. I don't want to go to sleep. I don't want to be overconfident. But every day, Lord, Lord, what is it that you want to do today? Lord, what is it that you want to do with Calvary Chapel? Lord, we want to be faithful and hold fast to the things that remain, the things that are good, that we know that we're to be about. But Lord, will you move among us? May we just humble ourselves, and especially in the day in which we are in, especially in the day in which we're in, in this community. This community needs Jesus Christ and the truth of God's word. And all of you have a part in that, whether you're praying, as you're giving, as you're serving, as, as you're reaching out to others. We all got a part to play, but don't go to sleep and don't become lethargic. Because if we do, any of us in this church, deadness will begin to come in. Deadness will become to, to come in and we'll be looking back and saying, do you remember those days? Do you remember those days when God was moving? And what I hope is we keep looking forward because the Lord wants to do so much more, as I've already said. He wants to do so much more. And as we look to his coming, being watchful, because he comes at a time that we do not know. So, Father, we thank you. This is a good reminder for us. And, Lord, to be a church that just continues to look to you and hold fast to those things that are good, profitable, right and true and Lord we never want to just become complacent as a church and that can happen to to me as the pastor it can happen to the leadership it can happen to us as a congregation and then over time we look back and we think Lord why is there this deadness this complacency and Lord we want to be living in that expectation that you want to do more. You want us to continue. You want us to seek you. You want us to be looking and watching, to be watchmen, to be ministering to those in our family and our neighbors and coworkers, reaching out to others, serving one another. Not taken for granted. The things that you have done here. What you are doing. The love that's here. The excitement that's here. Our young people. Lord, we want to invest in them. We want to invest in them. We want to encourage them. Lord, there are people out there in darkness and confused. They don't have what we have. That is you and the love of Christ and a family to belong to that, a family that is the body of Christ. And there are people that are alone and they're confused and they're hurting. So you want to do so much. 
So, Lord, I pray that every time that we walk in here, that we would see it's a privilege. That, Lord, every day we want to look to you to be open to lead us and guide us in those divine appointments that perhaps you have for us or to be flexible. Sometimes we can get so rigid. I know that I can get rigid with my time and rather than just being flexible, desiring to, to Lord, to, to maybe perhaps I need to call somebody and maybe spend some time with praying with somebody or checking in on somebody, Lord. Help us not to become lazy spiritually. So, Lord, these are all good reminders for us. And, Lord, I thank you for your patience and your love for us. I pray for Calvary Chapel here. Lord, we are thankful for what you have done. We have a little strength. Our strength is in you. Relying on you and looking to you, I pray that we would always be in that place. That we wouldn't rely on numbers or anything else. You alone. And Lord, we can use those things to further the kingdom, but you are, Lord, our strength. You're our provider. You're our strong tower. You're everything. Lord, I pray that we would be ones that we would look to you. You want to move as we start planning for the outreach in the park this summer, how it is that we can reach the kids. As we're going to be heading into Easter in a couple months and Lord how we can reach this community with the gospel how we can continue to just reach out with the radio how Lord we can encourage our young people I, I, I get excited when I talk to Pastor Jesse about the young adults and how they're just, they're just loving you and excited here on Friday nights and reaching out to others I see the kids upstairs and the youth how they're serving that blesses me Serving you, serving the community, feeding the homeless. They're learning about worship. Lord, there's life here. There's life. And you want to just continue to breathe life into us. Lord, that we wouldn't get complacent to where we stop giving and stop praying and just take it for granted. What takes place here? But Lord, we want to be praying and lifting each other up and knowing that you want to just continue for us to be sensitive to being led by you and working through us, in and us to reach Greeley, Well County, Colorado, as far as you want us to reach with the gospel in Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Lord, we commit all that to you. Lord, we just ask that you would just Lord, help us to be sensitive to you. We want to get behind where you want us to go and lead us and guide us. Lord, so I thank you for tonight. I thank you for this place. And I do pray, if there is anybody that's here, you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ, and I want to take a minute and tell you that he died for your sins. And the gospel is this, that our sins have separated us from God, and the wages of sin is death. And that's why Jesus came. He loved you so much. The Son of God, God in human flesh, came to this world and he went to the cross and died for you. That's why he came. And he died on that cross. He shed his blood for your sins. 
He was put into a grave and he rose again and he's alive. And salvation comes by faith in the cross of Christ, in his resurrection, what he has done for you. There is no other salvation. There's no other sacrifice for sin. It is Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. He is the way. And he's given the invitation for you to come and surrender your life to him. Will you do that right now? You can pray right where you're sitting. Sincerely, if you're listening on live stream. That Jesus, I come to you and I surrender my life to you. Confessing that I am a sinner. I believe you died for my sins on the cross. You rose again. And I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for bringing me here. I thank you for loving me and dying for me. And for this new beginning. And I want to walk with you and know you now. All the days of my life. In Jesus name. And if you prayed that prayer. As we are going to conclude the service, we'll have a prayer team up front. But also, if you're here, maybe there's a deadness that's taken place, lethargic or complacency, and you just need prayer. You want prayer. We're here not to judge you at all, because it happens to all of us, but to encourage you. And the Lord, he desires for you to come and just to lay those things at his feet and to confess it. Because he is one that is so gracious and loving and restores and desires for us to come to him in the honesty of our hearts and say, Lord, forgive me for my complacency, for being sleepy, for taking things for granted. And the Lord, he'll be gracious to you. Lord, breathe life into us and into this church always. And Lord, we just... Pray that you'd bless the rest of this week. Keep us safe as snow's going to be coming in. And Lord, we look forward to the next time that we gather together as your people. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?